0: Dr. Sean McDowell has devoted his career to help bring truth to the next generation. He's currently an associate professor of Christian apologetics at Biola University. He's a prolific author and a highly sought-after speaker with exceptional insight into the prevailing culture. Sean, thanks so much for joining us on Takeaways. Kirk, thanks for having me. Man, I, I'm really excited to talk to you. As a, as a young believer coming out of—I lost my faith in atheism when someone okay. shared the gospel with me, huh. and then somebody actually introduced me to a book that your dad wrote that had a profound impact on me. Mm. And it actually helped me to intellectually examine the claims of the Bible, the gospel, and Jesus— with you growing up with someone like your dad who was able to persuade so many people with regard to the gospel and the truth of the resurrection, was it easy for
1: you to believe everything he ever taught and that you heard at church as a kid? Yeah, it was easy because my parents modeled it and lived it, and they taught it to me. I'd hear him speak, we'd talk about this over the dinner table, it made sense, I never doubted it. Until I got to college, and this is like mid-90s, So there's no social media yet, but it was the very first time you could look on the internet. You couldn't Google stuff yet, but I came across all these websites of these atheists responding to my dad's material chapter by chapter. And these are lawyers and doctors and historians, and I just never heard that before. That rocked me a little bit. and That was a big moment in my life where I thought, okay, why do I believe this? Am I just accepting what my parents told me? Or is this really true? Are there answers to these tough objections? So, yes, it was easier growing up until, bam, I came across some really smart people who challenged my ideas. At that point, I needed to really own it.
0: Wow. You needed to own your faith. Mm-hmm. And so what, what helped you shift from unbelief to belief? Because you don't just believe it. You defend it now. I mean, you're, you're, you're yeah. a professor
1: at a university talking about this stuff. Well, one of the pieces was I actually went to my father, and he's written a 100 and some books spoken around the world. I've read a lot of them. I know, I know you have. I mean, he's committed his life to defending the historical Jesus. And I went to him knowing my dad loved me, but with a little bit of trepidation, telling him, I'm not sure I believe this. And he just looked at me, he goes. I wish I could have been there at that moment. Oh, I, wish, you know- I wish I had a hidden camera to show people and watch myself. But as you know, my dad, the glass is 99% full. He's just an optimist. And he looks at him, he goes, son, I think that's great. And my next thought, Kirk, was like, you must not have heard what I just said. Yeah, you didn't hear what I just said. And he goes, no, I heard it. He goes, you can't live on my beliefs. You have to know for yourself what you think is true. And if you seek after truth, since Jesus is the truth, I'm confident you'll find it. And you know your mom and I love you no matter what. That was just a powerful moment that was wow. like— My, He left you into the hands of, of a faithful God. hundred percent. He could not have answered better.
0: And so, obviously, you had to do some digging and studying and researching to, to, to come to a place of saying, do I really believe that a man rose from the grave? I mean, that's not something you see every day. I mean, uh, I know we have people who say that they can raise people from the grave, but I'm like— pull out your phone, you know, let's record this. I mean, this is a pretty, this is a pretty unique event. Um, when you finally came to believe that, was that the result of lots and lots of processing arguments? Or was that, hey, I believe this because I'm a sinner and the Holy Spirit has spoken to my heart and I'll figure out the arguments later?
1: I think it was both. I think that I had to make sense of certain things, and I had to understand, okay, how do I respond to the claim that the Bible has contradictions? I had to find some answers to that. At that point, people were making the argument, and they still do today on the internet, that there's nothing unique about Jesus rising from the dead. It's just copied from these mythical pagan mystery religions. I'd never heard that before. So I needed to find answers. Right. But amidst that process, and I don't remember exactly the details how it played out, there, was just, there were some people that I read that really made me aware of my own sinfulness And I think, I know the Holy Spirit was working through my heart intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, bringing that to fruition. So I'm not sure I didn't believe before then. I just think my belief was really weak and not mature, and I don't think I really owned it in the way this process helped me to own it.
0: Finding answers to questions was really, really helpful to me. Hmm. But what I find interesting is that there were people who saw Jesus do miracles. They saw Jesus dead on a cross and then alive again after he was buried in the tomb. They didn't need answers to arguments about Jesus was a legend, or he didn't really die on the cross, or uh, the the disciples stole the body. They saw it with their own eyes, and yet they still walked away from him. They still didn't believe. Mm -hmm. Uh, What? Why is that? Why do you think people today can have great answers to arguments or even see it with their own eyes and still reject
1: the resurrected Jesus? So you're right. They had good evidence in front of them. So why didn't they believe? Well, I think that question, which we naturally ask, assumes the heart of the issue is solely evidential but it's not. I mean, as you know, becoming a Christian isn't just checking off a box that I believe this independently of how I live. Jesus is like, pick up your cross and die. That's the hard part. (laughs) I mean, that is the hard part, but behind this belief in the evidence is, this is gonna cost me everything, and we know that. So I think there's, there's a couple reasons why people would have evidence and not believe. One could just be worldview. People who have a naturalistic worldview don't believe God exists. Or maybe if God is out there, he doesn't intervene in the natural world. If you assume miracles don't happen, you're going to find a way to explain it away. Kirk, I remember a number of years ago, I'd taken a group of high school students to Berkeley. And we brought in some atheists, brought in some agnostics, and we actually interacted. These are high school students with some college and graduate uh, atheists and skeptics, this kind of skeptical group. And we're having a conversation. There's like a couple hundred here people here watching it one of my students asked him, like, what would it take for you to believe? And this guy goes, if I mm. called down, he's an atheist, if I called down a miracle right now and God did it, I would believe. I kid you not. And then he paused and he goes, but then I'd probably think I was on drugs and it's my bla- brain playing tricks on me. I mean, he said that. And I thought, wow, there's almost nothing that would convince him because his anti-supernatural worldview is so deep. At times, there's moral reasons somebody might not want to believe, right? right? There can be intellectual reasons. There can be volitional reasons. There can be worldview issues. And there can be moral issues. I had a guy tell me straight up, and I'm not saying this is true for everybody, but he told me, he goes, look, I, I think Jesus is God, but I'm not going to follow this because there's a bunch of girls I'm texting right now. And why would I give up having sex with these girls for some belief? He goes, if that condemns me to hell, so be it. I've never had somebody be that frank to me. but all at least these, he's being honest. He, I was like, I didn't know what to say. I was stunned at his honesty. But the point is, even with evidence, there's a lot of reasons. World view, emotional, relational, spiritual, moral. There's a lot going on. I've found that to be true too and I remember RC Sproul once
0: said that the primary problem with the sinner and the gospel is not an intellectual problem it's a moral spiritual problem mm. he simply doesn't want to lay down his life and turn to the God of heaven and say I will I will I will divorce myself from
1: wickedness and I will follow you in obedience mm. that's the deal breaker that's That's hard. I mean, I was just reading with high school students this morning, we were reading 1 Corinthians 6, and it says, your body is not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God with your bodies. And in this case, it's avoiding sexual immorality. So I was talking to these students, I was like, if you actually believe this message, you're not your own, you're to die to yourself. Mm. That's why people can see evidence and be like, yeah, I would rather live differently. Let's get to the heart of this conversation.
0: There is a a sighting, a Jesus sighting that happened Mm -hmm. about 2000 years ago and they say the tomb is empty. What evidence do we have today that gives
1: us confidence that the resurrection is a historical fact? So there's at least 20 to 21 arguments for the empty tomb that cumulatively make a powerful case. One of the most compelling is in in regards to who discovered the empty tomb. Now, all four Gospels report that women discovered the empty tomb. We read that in our modern culture, and we don't think twice about it. But in that patriarchal culture, a woman was typically not educated the same way as a man. In fact, there's some ancient Jewish Proverbs, not in the scriptures, that says, better the words of the law burnt than delivered to women. (laughs) They were looked down upon, and so, Put yourself in the position of the gospel writers. If they're inventing a story of an empty tomb and they want to convince people that this is true, who are the least likely witnesses they would invent, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to be persuasive? And the answer is they obviously wouldn't invent women. That would be counterproductive. So the reason they report women, the most likely reason, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John heard a story that they believe and they're passing on what they think is true. So that's one reason that, it's kind of called the criterion of embarrassment, that people don't invent material to intentionally embarrass themselves and disparage their message. So when writers include that, it's because they care more about truth than the perception. So women discovering the empty tombs is very, very significant. There's more than this. Another one I think is interesting is that Jesus was buried in Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting about this is if you're going to go invent a story that's not true, the hardest place to do this would be in Jerusalem because somebody would say, okay, wait a minute. We actually know Joseph of Arimathea. We know the name of the person who had the tomb that buried Jesus. That's pretty amazing 2,000 years later and his position of authority. They just go check his tomb and see if the body was there, but they don't. Why? Because the body's gone. So the apostles go preach the risen Jesus in Jerusalem, the very city Jesus was publicly crucified and buried in a known tomb. Minimally shows incredible confidence that the tomb itself was empty. That's the second one. I'll give you a third one. as quickly. It's the first explanation for the empty tomb is that the religious leaders, uh, the religious leaders say that the apostles stole the body. That's the explanation if they say they stole the body, what are they assuming about the state of the tomb? That's that it's empty. That it's empty, right? You don't say to your teacher something like, my dog ate my homework, if you have your homework. So the first explanation from the religious leaders is the apostle stole the body, which shows that the body was gone and the tomb was empty. Now, we could talk about whether or not it's reasonable for the apostles to steal their body, and I mainly think it's not reasonable because, number one, they had to get by the guard, but number two, why would they go out and willingly suffer and be willing to die for something if they stole a body and knew it was false? So I think when we start to piece some of these things together, there's reasons why some of the greatest journalists— greatest historians, greatest lawyers, and thinkers of all time have stopped and been like, wow, there's a powerful case that Jesus lived, died, buried, and appeared to people on the third day.
0: And isn't it true that it's not only in the Bible that we read about Jesus living, dying, being buried, and being seen after he died, but that's also attested to by non-Christian
1: contemporary historians during that time. So some of those facts, yes. Now I know you're not implying this, but when skeptics say to me, well, what about outside the Bible? There's kind of an assumption that we can't trust the Bible. I'm telling you, Kirk, if we had none of these other sources, I still think we can trust the accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and other early Christian historians to have confidence that it's true.
0: Yes, so do I. With
1: with that said, when we go outside of the scriptures, you have writers like Josephus at the end of the first century that affirm the existence of Jesus. And who's Josephus? Josephus was a Jewish writer writing on behalf of the Romans in the 90s. Not a Christian. He was not a Christian, no. And so he gives basic facts, Jesus, the brother of James, Jesus lived— He was died. There's reports that he's the Messiah. He doesn't give all the details, but he tells details that help support and corroborate the accounts within the Gospels. You get in the second century, you have writers like Tacitus, who's a Roman historian, and he also points the existence of Pontius Pilate, the death of Jesus, the persecution of early Christians. You find these extra biblical sources, and by the way, there's not a ton of extra biblical sources on anything in that time period at that time. So the fact that they would even talk about Jesus, who's a religious leader in a small corner of the empire that didn't have any political power anyways, is significant. So there are some non-Christian sources that are relatively early that help strengthen the case that we're talking about.
0: This is awesome, I can't wait to talk more about this. And, uh, and we will, right after the break. So, Sean just shared some powerful evidences for the truth of the resurrection. Uh, Sean, one of the arguments that I was wrestling with as a prospective believer was, well, if this resurrection did not happen, then what do I do with my sin problem? Mm. Once I understood that I had offended a holy God, I didn't need uh, anyone to convince me of that. My own conscience was just giving me lots of evidence, (laughs) all the bad things that I had done. Mm. Even though I didn't believe in God, I knew that something had to be done if God did exist Mm. because uh, I I had offended him. Mm. And I thought, well, well, what else am I going to do if I don't have a resurrected Jesus? Am I just going to Try to clean up my act, well I know that doesn't work. Uh, Join some other religion, well ultimately there's no solution for my sin. I I found that to be a powerful argument. The other argument was uh, from your dad's book, More Than a Carpenter, and it's the trilemma Mm -hmm. article. So uh, he sort of took dilemma, uh, riffing off of the word die too, to a trilemma and said, well Jesus said such outlandish things like the Father and I are one. He he said that he was the Son of God who's gonna rise from the grave. He was the fulfillment of all this prophecy. Uh, He was either a liar, Mm -hmm. or he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. He really is who he said he was. And he went through the evidences of those and uh, convinced me that it was very unlikely that Jesus lied. Like, why would you go to the cross and be crucified? Uh, And lie about the whole thing. I mean, like, you know, there was no back end deal with the Pharisees. (laughs) There was no book publishing deal when (laughs) you're dead on the cross. And as far as a lunatic, I mean, mental health experts today would look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is the most mentally well balanced man that ever lived. Hmm. Love your enemies kind of thing. I mean, this guy was like, so what's left? He must have been who he said he was. I found that very powerful. But your dad updated the book, and he added a fourth Mm -hmm. option,
1: which Mm -hmm. was the legend option. So it's Lord, liar, lunatic, legend. And I think the heart of what you're getting at this argument is, and what C.S. Lewis talked about it, through the history of the church, there's been a lot of writers trying to say if Jesus really claimed to be God, had the authority to forgive sins, said, I and the Father are one there's only so many options we have to conclude about the person of Jesus. What kind of guy would say that? Right. That's the question, and we rule out liar, we rule out lunatic, but recently, more recently, people said, well, what about legend? And this can mean one of two things. It could be that Jesus really existed, but these stories crop up later about resurrections and walking on water, so we can't trust that. Kind of like there was a real St. Nicholas, but he doesn't really ride uh, on a a sleigh with reindeer pulling it. Exactly, that's one option. The other one is this more mythical view that it's entirely legend. That Jesus never even existed. Jesus never existed. And that has gotten a lot of traction on the internet. because everybody has a microphone today, can make claims that Jesus didn't exist. When we talk about legend like St. Nick, one of the problems is we have such early evidence for the identity and resurrection of Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15, a a letter Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the mid-50s. In chapter 15, he says, I pass on to you, the Christians in Corinth, what had been passed on to me, that Jesus died, buried, rose on the third day, and appeared to people. That is a creed that was given to Paul that he inserts in his letter that predates that letter in the mid-50s. Now, I think scholars can make a very good case that that creed itself traces back to within three to five years of the death of Jesus. So what that tells us, this idea that Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and appeared to people is not appearing decades or centuries later. As some legend that was made up over time and embellished. No way the earliest heart of the message we have always is that to believe in Jesus is to believe that he conquered the grave, that he has resurrected. So I think we can rule out that from 1 Corinthians 15. The idea that Jesus didn't exist just bumps up against all the gospel accounts we have, the other New Testament writings. The other Christian writers outside of the Bible, like Ignatius and Polycarp, uh, Clement of Rome, etc., that are early, and the non-Christian writings. Who all claim that this Jesus was a real person. Yeah, there are some good challenges to the Christian faith we should take seriously. But the idea that Jesus didn't exist is not one that even most critical scholars would embrace.
0: Sean, what do you attribute the longevity of the spread of the gospel too. I mean, people have been talking about this resurrected
1: Jesus for over 2,000 years. So I I think it's two things. I think part of it is the Christians very early took seriously the spread of this message, writing books, becoming missionaries, copying the Bible more frequently and carefully than any other ancient book. So part of it is the transmission. I think the other part is the heart of the message, The idea that God entered into history through the person of Jesus, lived a sinless life, defeated death. And that means you and I can be forgiven. They call it the gospel for a reason because it's good news. We see this all over film, like even in like superhero movies, like the superhero will lay down his or her life, come back from the grave as this act of sacrifice. This is all over fiction. But the claim of the Christians is this actually took place in history. And that means you and I have been forgiven. We don't have to fear the grave. Death is not the end. We have the power of forgiveness and the power of the cross inside of us. That's what I think when people hear it and they understand it. It's a message when you get it, you can't help but tell somebody else if you've experienced that in your own life. So that's why Christians are like, we're going to the lions for this message. We're going to go care for people who are sick. Even if we get sick and die, Jesus has conquered the grave. So it's a message that changes lives. And so people have been telling this message across language, across continent, since the time that Jesus came, and there's no indication that it's slowing down.
0: Sean, I'm thinking of somebody who could be watching this conversation right now going, you know what? This is great. I've never heard people talk about this stuff, this mm-hmm. kind of thing before. Then there's really answers to these questions. Um... I wonder, though, if there's somebody who's watching who grew up in the church and maybe their mom or their dad was a respected leader. And so they never felt like they could really question this stuff and embarrass mm-hmm. their parents or ruin their legacy or something like that. You can speak to them uh, with qualifications that I can't because I was an atheist. I didn't grow up like that. And so um, I didn't have any skin in the game to ask mm-hmm. all of the questions. Um, would, would you just talk to the person who's watching in that camera right over there and just... Explain to them why they really need
1: the resurrection. Mm. First off, I understand that concern that you don't want to ask questions and undermine like a faith that's been passed on to you. But let me tell you something. God is big enough for your questions. In the book of Jude, it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus calls us to love God with our minds. So take your questions, seek answers for them, and you'll be confident that you find them. I'm confident that you will find them, But also realize the resurrection isn't just something you think is true that you check off. It gets to the heart of who Jesus is. And at the heart of that message is that you and I have been forgiven. You know, like Kirk mentioned earlier, sometimes we have this sense of sin and this feeling of guilt. Well, maybe you feel guilt and I feel guilty sometimes because we are guilty. But Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That is the greatest news, hence the gospel. And I'd invite you to seek it for yourself, read it, and the place to start is to just read the gospel of John. I could send you some some apologetics books, which are helpful, books on evidence, but the first place is to go to the gospels and read John and ask yourself, who is this person Jesus? How do he have such authority? Why has he turned the world upside down more than anybody who's ever lived? And how does that message apply to me? If you approach the Gospels with that openness, I really believe Jesus will show himself to you. Sean, thank you so much. This this is awesome. I so appreciate you coming. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.